Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. You guys ready to roll in to our one-part message today? Some of you are like... I'm nervous when you do this kind of stuff, but you don't need, maybe you need to be nervous. I don't know. We'll find out 15 minutes into this. So here's my question. Have you ever heard of the fundamental attribution error? No? That's fine. I like knowing stuff that you don't love. No. The fundamental attribution error, it basically says this. It's going to be on the screen. It is a cognitive bias that causes us to attribute someone's behavior to their character but we attribute our behavior to circumstances and environmental factors. And that's just true, right? So it, here's how it like plays out on just a practical level. Like somebody comes into work and they're late, you're like, dude's lazy. He's lazy, he's irresponsible, can't make it here on time. And then the moment that you show up late, you're like, I'm super responsible because I had a crisis at home and the crisis at home needed my attention, so I gave attention to the crisis at home and so I'm late because I am so responsible. And it's just what we do. We always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. It's always around social and environmental factors. For everybody else, it's just around their character. You're just lazy and that's the reason that you're late and you're constantly irresponsible. Like, that, that's how that plays out. And the fundal, um, fundamental attribution bias happens when we assume a person's actions reflect what kind of person they are, like who they are as an individual, rather than social and environmental factors. Now, that is no more true than in the whole political landscape. Like, this is what we do all the time. Like, Democrats are nothing but corrupt. Republicans are always heartless. And our thought, regardless of what side you are on, is always like, there is something that is wrong with those people. Like, they're messed up. They don't think right. Like, literally this week, I saw a post from a pastor that will go unnamed. And he was describing people who had a different political ideology than him. And in his post, he said, those people are either dumb or they're deceived. So if you don't agree with me, you are dumb or deceived, according to this guy. And like, that's what we do. And it's this, this dividing line of there has got to be something wrong with you if you would hold that opinion. And it's this whole idea of whatever the categories are, like, you know, Democrats are socialists, Republicans are all racist, and you're like, I've met every single one of them, and I know that this is true. And it's like putting people into these broad categories and holding to this fundamental attribution bias. I attribute what you do and what you hold to, to your character, and I attribute social and environmental factors to my, care, my decisions and my ideologies and my platforms. And I just want to say this, and I'll, I'll just start to get us uncomfortable right up front. Like, this is just true. Mature, like high EQ, meaning emotional intelligence, like mature, high EQ, curious, humble empathetic people, they don't fall for that. They just don't. They just don't fall for that. And here's the thing that you know is true. Political rhetoric feeds it. 
And here's what's true. Nothing divides like politics because nothing divides like fear. And at the heart of what divides so many people is fear. And what it is, is fear of loss. And that fear of loss is different for everybody. Whether you're on the right, left, you're in the middle somewhere, you don't know where you are. It's fear of losing my freedom. It's fear of losing my way of life. It's, it's fear of, of losing what I think is, is paramount to what I want to see for our country. It's on and on it goes. But at the heart of it, it, it is I fear that I'm going to lose something. And nothing divides like politics because nothing divides like fear. Like, come on, we can all agree about this. Like, fear drives ratings. Fear, you can raise a lot of money with fear. In fact, I think that I could increase the bottom line here if I fear-mongered a little bit more, so I'm missing out. Like, fear raises a lot of dollars. And so here is the question that I want to answer in a few minutes, and it really comes out of Galatians 6-2 when Paul writes this to Jesus' followers in every century, he says, when we choose to carry someone's burden, we fulfill the law of Christ. And I'll explain what that means in a few minutes, but here's the reality is when we choose to do that, which I'll describe later, what divides us begins to diminish and what unites us begins to surface. When you are willing to do what Paul's talking about here, all of a sudden you start to fear less and you start to understand more. And I'm just telling you because a lot of us, like we just missed this or it wasn't taught in history class, but as you look at the first century church, this is what moved the church in the first century. This is what changed the world. This is what moved the needle in that time and space because they were willing to listen and learn and lean in even among people that they didn't agree with and people that would be termed their enemies. They learned to carry one another's burdens and in that way they fulfilled the law of Christ. Now, here's what up front I want to tell you what I'm not saying because this can be so misunderstood. I'm not saying, as I unpack what I'm about to unpack, that you shouldn't be involved. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a voice. I have several friends that are running for different seats. I'm not saying that you shouldn't vote. You should do all of those things. In fact, I think you have the responsibility to do all those things. And the scripture actually outlines how we engage in that process. And and there's a clue at the end of Galatians. It's all down to the law of Christ, which is summarized as the New Testament covenant or the New Testament command. Everything in the New Testament is about the law of Christ. And so it starts with my law of Christ lenses that I am to love other people the way that God has loved me. I'm to love people who are like me, not like me. I'm to love my enemies, but it all starts with the law of Christ. And then the law of Christ ultimately informs your conscience, right? Like as followers of Jesus, that's how we roll. It is the law of Christ that informs our conscience around things like justice, things like respect or disrespect, things that we think are gonna undermine the fabric of what we think is so important, but whatever that looks like, and it's played out and applied in a bunch of different areas, but the law of Christ ultimately informs our conscience. And then out of law of Christ informed conscience, and this is so important for Jesus' followers, listen to me for a second, is we are then called to couple wisdom and knowledge with that. I just wanna say to some of my skeptic friends, we have so many that are watching and listening, what I love about this message too is this is a big family message. Because something like this, uh, it impacts so many people, and so it's not only people in the room right now. We have 2.8 million people via unfiltered radio, and so this is a big family together talking about this today. And I want to talk to some of you specifically. The science and psychology and systems are not in contradiction to the scriptures. In fact, one of the things about science is it is simply an apparatus to understand how God did stuff. 
And so law of Christ informed conscience coupled with wisdom and knowledge, cause and effect, the world was set up with systems. All of that is to be taken into account. And once you do those three things, it leads you to political ideologies, political platforms, ideas about policy and about legislation. And that's how we arrive. And you should arrive at a conclusion. You should think about it. You should engage. You should have a voice. But here's what I want to tell you. Jesus followers will always disagree on that fourth one. Jesus followers will always disagree on that fourth one. Legitimate on on every side will disagree with my law of Christ informed conscience coupled with wisdom and knowledge and I am full on following Jesus and yet I arrived here and you arrived here. And here's what I wanna say for just a second for those of you who are already nervous. The the church should be the safest place in the world to talk about anything. And it should be the safest place in the world to talk about politics, but not to affirm a political platform. So for some of you who are all geeked up today, and I just stole a term from 2000, so I don't know where that came from, but those of you who are here today, sorry, and you're like, man, you're waiting for me to, okay, what's he going to say? And finally, he's going to take a stand. I'm not, not in regard to what you want, because the church was never meant to be the right arm of any political party. The moment it becomes the arm of any political party, it fails to become the conscience of a nation. And and so I get it. And here's what I want to stress. Our church, more so than some of you realize, is all over the place. I mean, it is all over the place. And then you add radio to that and podcasts. It is all over the place. We are divided on every side, which I absolutely love. It is the church that we set out to create. And so it is so important that we can, in fact, some of you would get so nervous if you knew who you were sitting by right now. Like if you could ride home with them and you knew the sign that was in their yard or the hat they're gonna reach for in their car, you'd be like, no, nah, why am I sitting next to this person? It's just true. So he, here's the big idea. Just stay with me for a second. Here's the big idea. As we look in the mirror, because it is about the American in the mirror, and I'm talking specifically to church people, Jesus followers, but this applies to everybody. This is what is so hard, and it's so hard to see in the mirror. Are we willing to evaluate our politics through the filter of our faith rather than creating a version of faith that supports our politics? Let me just drop that one more time. Are we willing to evaluate our politics through the filter of our faith rather than create a version of faith that supports our politics? And I know that that really gets no traction because you're like, no, I already do that. Like, that's what I do. Jesus follower first, but my Jesus following has led me to be a Democrat. My Jesus following has led me to be a Republican. I am a Jesus follower, so it's why I'm an independent. So when I say that, you're like, yeah, yeah, of course, that's what I'm going to do. That's why I hold to whatever position I hold to. So I get it. It's so hard to see in the mirror. But here's what I want to try to convince you of, and some of you, this is not really what you came for, but here's what I want to try to convince you of. We do the world a disservice when we attempt to wrap our political ideologies with the teachings of Jesus. Jesus did not come to be a footnote to any political party. As Tony Evans said when I was in seminary, Jesus did not come to take sides. Jesus came to take over. And come on. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus, right? Everybody leverages and uses Jesus. Jesus' name is signed to so many things. 
So if you're a Republican, you're like, Jesus is a Republican. I don't know how it could be any clear. It's in the scriptures. Like, if you follow Jesus, you are a Republican. And then Democrats are on the other side going, what are you talking about? Look at the New Testament. Read the New Testament. Jesus was a healthcare dispensing machine. Jesus is a Democrat. Like, how could you think anything different? Like, everybody wants a piece of Jesus. And I just want to encourage you by this idea that is so easy to get lost sight to lose sight of it and it has in every generation is that Jesus is the king who came to set up a kingdom that would reverse the order of things and it is not a kingdom of this world. And when we edit Jesus to fit inside of any political platform, we rob the world of the message that changed the world. And you should have a platform. You you should be engaged. But I'm just going to tell you, if Jesus fits neatly into whatever your platform is, and Jesus never disagrees with any of it, you have edited Jesus into your own image. Because Jesus did not come to fit perfectly into anything of this world. And so here's where I want to encourage us today. We cannot first and foremost be party people. And I'm not talking about your freshman year in college. That's another series. That's coming next. I'm talking about that cannot be your greatest allegiance. Should you be a part? Yes. I'm going to say it a hundred times because people are going to misunderstand me. But here's the reality. We must be kingdom people who use our influence to influence our party, whatever party that is. Listen, if you operate in this realm that few people do where you put your faith filter and Jesus filter first and your politics second... There are going to be times when there is a space between your political ideology or platform and the Jesus movement. There are going to be times where the message and the movement of Jesus collides up against your politics. And the question is, are you willing to call it out? Doesn't mean you have to abandon anything, but are you willing to call it out and full on follow Jesus? Here's the reality, and this has been true of all times, but we live in an imperfect world, imperfect systems, imperfect platforms, imperfect candidates. That's never changed. That's always been the case. And so we are often forced into the lesser of two evils if you're in that camp. But here is the reality for every Jesus follower. If you are forced into the lesser of two evils, as a follower of Jesus, you better call out the evil and not normalize the evil. Because the moment you do, You have put your political filter first and your faith filter second. You should engage. You should have a voice. You vote a certain way. All of that is great. But there are going to be times where you have to choose, hey, here's what I am siding with, but there's some things that are incongruent with the fact that I'm a follower of Jesus. And so here's where I'm siding, but I'm also calling out some things because first and foremost, I am not of this world. I am not of this kingdom. I'm a foreigner and a stranger here. One day, all of this is gonna go away. I serve King Jesus. And so there's some things that I need to call out because one day this is going to go away, but Jesus will still be the king who is ruling and reigning. There is a greater and a bigger allegiance. And so is this a big deal? Yeah. This is what Jesus' followers gave their lives for in the first century. And they, if you study history, they failed to give their unconditional allegiance to any emperor, even the good ones. 
And literally, they changed the fabric of an empire, the moral and ethical standing of the empire, and it all surrounded these three words. It was culturally disruptive unity. In a culture that celebrated wealth, it celebrated might, it celebrated like the power, it celebrated the class system. It was the ecclesia of Jesus, the church of Jesus that said, we are following somebody different. We are following a different kind of kingdom. And literally what the Jesus movement and the church began to do, it began to become dangerous. It began to become unbelievably disruptive to the empire. Because classes of people whose circles rarely overlapped unless they absolutely had to. Classes of, of, and circles of, of people that rarely overlapped came together voluntarily and regularly to worship the crucified God. And I can't describe to you the dividing walls that separated these people in the first century. And it caught the attention of the world because they understood that they were a part of a kingdom that was good news for all the people. And then you can imagine as Paul comes along to write some of what some say in ancient literature is the first references to egalitarianism ever. And Paul comes along and it's just, it's hard to overstate how extreme what Paul writes actually was. To especially to Roman Gentile Christians in a culture where what is self-evident to us was not self-evident to them. And Paul sits down to these Gentile Roman Christians and here's what he writes, and I cannot overstate how disruptive this was when he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. You're like, yeah, I've heard that a hundred times, but I'm telling you, the Jews who are listening to this, they're like, what? No, because it's li like li literally this is a Jewish religion. Like we're sharing Yahweh now. Like Yahweh is our God, this is our religion, we're God's chosen people, and, and God comes along through the writings of Paul to go, no, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. And they're like, how can that be? We've never invited a Gentile over to our house, ever. The Gentiles have never invited us over to the house. We don't hang out, Yahweh is ours, and then Jesus steps into it to go, no, a new king is here. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, and again, that's nothing to us. That's self-evident to us. It wasn't to them. And slaves, as they're hearing Paul's words, are going, so you're telling me that God views me on equal footing with my master? No, 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 no. This is what's self-evident. Some people were designed and created by God to rule other people, and then other people were literally born to be ruled. That's what's self-evident in our culture. And this ideology is so disruptive it's hard for us to understand, but literally these words right here that are so benign to us, they were planting the seeds for revolution in an empire. And then he writes, and nor is there male or female. Now, here's the thing about slavery in the ancient world. Slavery in the ancient world had nothing to do with race. Anybody could be a slave in the ancient world. And so in that kind of culture, women's dignity always suffers the most. And so literally, you didn't pay the payment on your donkey, they take your daughter to be a slave. You didn't make a payment on your house, they'll take your wife to go be a slave. Anybody could be a slave. Women had very little dignity, and as they're listening to Paul's words, they're like, hold up. Like, we don't even let women come into court because they're not even seen as a reliable individual. They're like a half person. And you're telling us 
that there is no distinction in value between women and men. I'm telling you, it was unheard of. It was not self-evident. It was shocking. It was disruptive. There's neither male or female, for you are all, what's the word? Help me out, online campus. You're all what? One in Christ Jesus. Paul's like, all people are of equal value and dignity. And that was so disruptive. That was not self-evident. And everybody in the empire knew that if that caught on and was taken seriously, the fabric of the empire would unravel. And the fabric of the empire unraveled. And exactly what Jesus predicted happened. Here's how Luke described it. This is Jesus' words before it ever happened. They couldn't imagine that this would be a forecast of the future in Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed all the way up until John. But since that time, meaning a new king is here, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. And when Jesus said this, they're looking around to go, we don't see anybody forcing their way into this. But it was gonna happen. And then 45 years after Paul writes this and 45 years after Paul is executed in Rome, a guy by the name of Pliny the Younger who was the governor of Rome in what is now modern day Turkey, he goes to write a letter to Emperor Trajan. And he's writing a letter to get some guidance on the fact that he had been called to basically interrogate Christians who were known as followers of the way at that time and then imprison them because they were a threat to the empire. And so Trajan is, or or Pliny the Younger is writing Trajan to go, okay, I just need some more information. Like, I know that I'm supposed to interrogate these people. I know we're supposed to imprison them. I just need some more information about what the threat is. Like, what have they done? And so then Pliny the Younger decides he's going to launch his own investigation. So he begins to investigate all of these Jesus followers in all these different villages to figure out, like, why is everybody so threatened? Like, what's the crime that they have committed? And then before he um, launches back a letter to Emperor Trajan, he writes all this down. And so then he sends it to Emperor Trajan to go, okay, I know what you want me to do. But just so you know, I launched my own investigations about these followers of the way. And here's what I discovered. So I'm just asking you, Emperor Trajan, is this why they're a threat to the empire? Is this why they should be eliminated? And here's what Pliny the Younger wrote, and this letter survived antiquities. It's so powerful. Here's what he says. This is what I found in all my investigation. The sum and substance of their fault or their error have been that they were accustomed to meet on on a fixed day before dawn. Okay, so first of all, like these people get up on a work day. So imagine this, like Sunday was a work day for them. Imagine if we had a work day um, worship and prayer meeting at 5 a.m. on a Monday, how many of you would show up? Like you barely made it here with an extra hour of sleep. Like, can you imagine, like what would the attendance on that be? These people would get up before dawn on a work day and they would gather together and they would worship Jesus. Like this is our people This is how we started. And then it says, here's what Pliny the Younger discovered. And they sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to God. So, so far, like, this is it. Now, I just, I want to just think about this for a second. Like, the next time you come in, you're like, I don't really like that song, or it's too loud, and I forgot my earplugs, or that's not my favorite worship leader, and da, 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 whatever, whatever. Just think about this. Think about 15 to 20 people gathering in a garden, 
and they don't know, they, they can't read. And so one of the ways that they learned theology was by singing. And at the top of their lungs, these 15 to 20 people that had no leverage would sing their lungs out because there was very little expression for how they could worship the Savior, this God who had done so much for them. He had leveled the playing field. He had created equality with all people. Slaves and lower class were invited into the ecclesia of the church, and they would gather together, and they would sing at the top of their lungs. Like, that's how we started. That's what we came from. And then he keeps going. And they bind themselves to an oath. And at this point, as you're reading Pliny the Younger's letter, you're like, okay, so this is where the dangerous cult stuff comes in. This is the, okay, we want to know how they're undermining the empire. It's probably some crazy oath. So what's the oath that they committed to? They bind themselves by an oath not to some crime, but to not commit fraud and theft or adultery and not to falsify their trust. Like they would gather together and they would, they would over and over again, they would give this oath to one another and before God. And I'm telling you for us, like, well, that's no big deal. But these values and virtues were unheard of. See, here's what you need to know about the Roman world. There was a civil law. There was no moral law. And in fact, moral law was not even present in religion. The gods were not moral. The, the, the ethic of love was not present with the gods. In fact, they spent all of their times trying to get in the good graces of God so they wouldn't light them up. The gods were not compassionate. They were not friendly. They were not full of grace. They were not full of love. There was civil law. There was no moral law. And so the fact that this group of people would gather together to commit this oath to one another was absolutely unheard of. And as they gathered together, what they did was felt accountable to God for how they treated the people of their community. So they would gather together to go, we're not going to defraud one another. I'm not going to steal somebody's idea or reputation. I'm going to be faithful to my husband or wife. I'm not going to falsify my trust. I'm going to commit to this because I'm accountable to God. Come on. Can you imagine if just this week every Christian did that? Can you imagine if every Jesus follower got up in the morning and they committed to do that? And then he ends this way. Nor, this is what they committed to, to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do, to do so. And plenty of the younger is like, that's it. That's all I found. Like, this is the group that's angering the gods. This is the group that is threatening the empire. This is the group that has to be eliminated. And I'm telling you, in a culture that worships strength, and conquest, and it was all about the ruling class. What the Jesus followers or followers of the way did, it was absolutely appalling to their culture. It was so weak. It was so ridiculous. It made no sense. And all of a sudden, what was absolutely appalling to their culture, suddenly over time, as they were near the upside down kingdom of Jesus' teachings, all of a sudden, what was appalling began to become appealing. And all of a sudden, there was these villages where people would get sick, and all the pagan priests would cut and run, and the followers of Jesus would ro roll into those villages at the threat of their very lives, and they would try to nurse the sick back to health, even their enemies. 
And they would rescue abandoned children who were seen as less than people because before Jesus, children were not valued the way that children are valued today. And, and, and girl babies were discarded and they would go and pick these babies up and try to nurse them back to health. It was the Jesus movement and Jesus followers, the ecclesia, who gave dignity to women when there was no dignity for women. And they gave dignity to slaves and they gave dignity to those who were a part of a lower class. And people would come to the edges of these Jesus communities and the only question they could ask is, who are these people? I love what Jordan Peterson says in 12 Rules for Life. I I couldn't say it better when he writes this. Christianity achieved the well-nigh impossible. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing slave and master, commoner and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing, rendering them equal before God and the law. The implicit, transcendent worth of each and every soul established itself against impossible odds. And the kingdom of God, as it was described by Jesus, initially was appalling. And then it became appealing. And eventually it became contagious. And it spread through the empire like an airborne disease that could not be stopped. And against all odds, what was called a Nazarene sect in the book of Acts that worshiped a crucified rabbi with no influence, with no political standing, with no money, with no military, with nothing to their name, and two unbelievably weak ideas. I want you to love your enemy, and then I want you to love the people around you, that's it. And that idea, against all odds, changed the world. It changed Western civilization, and we are a part of that movement. And it's why. It is why we dare not be divided by temporary political platforms because I don't know, I'm sure you know this, one day they're going away. Like, do we have any Whigs in the house? Any Federalists in the house? Any survive? No? One day they're going to go away. We dare not be divided by fear We dare not be divided by temporary political parties or temporary political leaders because one day all of it is going to go away and the only thing left will be King Jesus who is ruling and reigning on his throne with an upside down kingdom that will never, ever fade. Listen, I love, I love the country that we're a part of, and I know we have many that are listening, watching from other countries around the world. I, I love the United States of America, but this is just the reality. One day, it will be a footnote in the archives of a new creation. It is not here to stay. Don't buy in to giving all of your allegiance to a lesser king, whoever that may be. And come on, the first century church, and I wish that for some of you, you know this, others of you, you should just do yourself a favor and just do some reading around this. They were divided in ways that even today we cannot imagine. If they were able to find unity around the foot of the cross, we have no excuse. 
And it was all centered around this, culturally disruptive unity that shocked the world. Women and men, slaves and free, upper class, lower class, Romans and Gentiles, Samaritans, all gathering together weekly to worship the ruling and the reigning king. And eventually that culturally disruptive unity that shocked the world eventually leveraged their message to change the world. And I'm telling you, we are here today because of their influence. So I wanna give you three things and we'll be done. I wanna give you three things in terms of, okay, so what does this look like for us? And so some of these are like, ah, okay, I get this, this is 101, but I'm telling you, we, we have to come back to these because what I'm about to talk about, it is not happening right now in large part. First thing I wanna encourage you to do. And some of you, you don't have to do any of this. Do what you do a lot of message series and like, oh yeah, this is good, and then you go away and do nothing. So that's your prerogative, that's fine, okay? Give you permission, you do that all the time. But here's what I just wanna encourage you to do if you take this seriously. The first thing is I just wanna encourage you to listen, to listen to people who do not experience the world the way you experience the world. And I mean on every spectrum. I'm just talking about Republican, Democrat. I'm talking about every type of person you can imagine. Gay, straight, religious, irreligious, educated, non-educated, like black, white. I mean, what, what, whatever it is, every type of individual you can imagine who is not like you, who doesn't look like you, who didn't grow up in the same area of town that you do, was not educated the way that you are educated, find those people and listen to individuals who do not experience the world the way you experience the world. Here's the reality for all of us. And I'm talking to right, left, in the middle, not sure where you are. Here's the reality. All of us, all of us stand depending on where we sit. I'll explain that in just a second. To quote Rufus Miles, it's called the the Miles Law. All of us stand depending on where we sit. Let me explain it this way. Our cultural context ultimately determines our perspective in a lot of ways. Our cultural context, talking about where we sit, determines where we stand, talking about our perspective, talking about how we see the world, talking about how it influences our politics and our platforms. And your cultural context is where you were raised, how you were raised, who raised you, what area of the country, education, if you were educated, what you saw, what you experienced, what you saw other people experience around you. But where you stand is determined at least in part by where you sit. And it's why for a lot of us, we never see any disconnection between our faith and our politics. We're just like, I, whatever, whatever, because I'm a Jesus follower. I'm a Republican because I'm a Jesus follower. And every Jesus follower should be a Republican. I'm a Democrat because I'm a Jesus follower. Like, this is why I hold to what I hold to. Maybe. But you know this. You didn't come to any of your views in a vacuum. They were influenced by things. And here's all I wanted to, I just want you to give enough room to consider this. You don't have to agree with it, to just listen to some other people around you. There are people who are law of Christ, followers of Jesus who have given their lives that love Christ and love his church with all their heart. Law of Christ, informed conscience, coupled with wisdom and knowledge. And they have come to a different conclusion than you. And that we would have some high EQ, emotionally intelligent, curious, empathetic people that would go, I'm just gonna listen to you. I don't have to change, I'm not asking you to change your view. Nobody's asking you to change your view. 
You, you, maybe you shouldn't change your view, but be willing to listen to other people who do not and have not experienced the world the way that you experience the world. Because I know the first thing you think, I can't understand why somebody who's a Jesus follower would, fill in the blank, be a Democrat. I can't understand why they would be a Republican. I cannot understand how they could hold to that and love Jesus. You just made a really powerful admission. You don't understand. And it's not that you should change your view but you should at least lean in to listen to what you don't understand and then maybe walk away to disagree with other law of Christ, conscience-informed wisdom and knowledge followers of Jesus who have come to a different position on ideologies and policies and platforms and leaders. Second thing I wanna encourage you to do is to just learn. Here's the thing that I hate most about our cancel culture is that if you disagree with one thing, you disregard everything. And in a lot of ways, it is the death of knowledge. And I don't understand it because I'm just not wired that way. One of the funniest stories when my wife and I first got together and um, I just read all kind of crazy stuff from people I don't, I just love to learn about different individuals and perspectives and I'm a nerd theologically, so I'm reading all kinds of, and so I was reading these, un, what some would consider really out there books and my wife, who when she first came to know me was just freaked out. Like, this guy's going off the rails. Like, I'm just not even sure what he believes anymore. And one day she's driving over to my house. We were still dating and she's got a Ryrie study Bible. She's like, I want to sit down and talk to you. And I was like, go home. Like, we're not going to do that. And, but it's just, I, like, I, I love that. And I just want to encourage you, like, be a student first and a critic second. In a cancel culture, we won't listen to anybody. So the moment I disagree with you, unfollow the moment I disagree with you, I'm not liking it anymore. I'm not reading any of your books. I'm not gonna be next to you. I'm not gonna have anything to do with you. I'm not gonna listen to any of your stuff. And listen, there are people that are around you that have a completely different perspective than you that you can learn from. To sit down and go, I'm not sitting down with some kind of arrogant, I'm gonna teach you and educate you. No, no, I'm gonna realize that I am not the source of all truth. And like, I'm, I'm pretty, like I have opinions and they're pretty strong opinions, but I understand that a part of what I think is a flawed worldview because I am not Jesus. Yeah. A part of how you think there is a flawed worldview in you. And come on, for some of us, aren't there views that you once held really strongly and that you've changed your position on? Amen. I mean, hopefully, somewhere. I just wanna encourage you to learn from individuals who are around you. And I just wanna say this. Your brother or sister to your right is not crazy. Some of them are crazy, but they're not all crazy. Your brother or your sister to your left, they're not crazy. They haven't all lost their mind. Some of them are law of Christ, informed conscience, wisdom and knowledge, and they have come to a different perspective than you. And I know you can't understand it, but it's why you should listen and learn from them. Yeah. It's why you should sit down with them and, the, and why Christians should be the most confident people on the planet, not arrogant. Yeah. But what do I have to be afraid of? Yeah. I serve a God of resurrection. Yeah. I have a strong opinion about what should happen on Tuesday. But listen, either way, I'm sleeping really, really well because I'm serving a God who's introduced an upside down kingdom and we are gonna be fine. So... What you have to understand is there's some people to your right or your left in your middle and they are taking a stand based on where they sit. 
And you need to begin to understand where they sit specifically in this house right here. And then I just wanna say this last thing and I gotta be done. And I know this is no brainer, but I gotta say it. That you would listen, that you would learn, and then that you would love. Never burn a relational bridge over a political view. Never burn a relational bridge over. I know some of you disagree with me so strongly of, bro, you need to take a step. Listen, I am never, ever, ever going to give up influence unnecessarily. And there are literally a couple million people that tune into us. And I have been called to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a kingdom that is without end. And my allegiance as a follower of Jesus is to that first and foremost. And so everybody should go and do their thing and vote and be engaged. I will do that. But as a leader of a church, our church is about leading people to Jesus, not leading people to a platform. Never give up influence unnecessarily. People are more valuable than your political view. Because while you were both sinners, Christ died for you. So, I wanna encourage you to do this, and this is so no-brainer, but I, this is a big deal for some of us. If we just did this this week, I'm gonna get crazy, just do this in the next seven days. I want you to look for an opportunity to love unconditionally someone with whom you disagree politically. Amen. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't know anybody. That's a problem. <laughs> and if I can just push, I love you. It's maybe why you haven't learned anything in 15 years. So, so you need to find, one of the, the great advantages of my job, is one of the things I love the most is, and especially as as this has grown, is I get the opportunity to have deep friendships with so many different people that I, I never grew up with. And I love hanging out with people who are nothing like me. And I'll just tell you, in, in a lot of cases, it hasn't changed my view. But it's changed my view sometimes. As I sit down with people who are nothing like me, I just wanna encourage you to do that. And listen, here's the reality. Your candidate is gonna win or lose on Tuesday based on how America votes. The church is gonna win or lose based on how we behave every day after. And hey, Jesus followers, we're to look different. I think one of the things that hurts my heart the most in this season is that I don't know that we're distinguishable. We're just as angry and divisive as everybody else. But we serve the king that came to reverse the order of things. And so I'm gonna end with what Paul said that we looked at at the beginning. Carry one another's burdens. And in this way, even if you don't do anything else, you're gonna fulfill the law of Christ. Listen, you don't have to understand me or agree with me to love me. I don't have to understand you or agree with you to love you, especially as my brother and sister in Christ. We can disagree politically and we can love unconditionally. And I know you're like, okay, but that, okay, whatever, dude, that you're a pastor, that's what you should see. Say, that's how I expected you to wrap this message, blah, blah, blah. Dude, it's a little bit naive. And my response to you would be, no. You know what naive is? 
Naive is Jesus in the middle of a desert with 12 dudes, with no education and no money. Again, no platform, no military, nothing. And he says to these 12 guys, hey guys, lean in. It's like 110 degrees outside. We gotta make it quick. I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell won't be able to overcome it. And he did, and it didn't. That's naive. So come on, let's not miss what I think is the opportunity of a lifetime to be the church and to recognize that we serve a king that will outlast all of the little lesser kings. And we serve a king who has brought a kingdom that would reverse the order of things. And so go with your law of Christ informed conscience coupled with wisdom and knowledge and arrive at a conclusion and be passionate about it. But recognize that your ultimate allegiance is not to here and it's not even to this time and space. It is to a bigger and greater kingdom. And if we do that, we might change our community. We might leave this space, this area, and the many who listen all around the state and beyond, we might leave it a little less divided. To quote Joshua's, for me and my house, that's what we're doing. And I'm hoping for us in this house, that's what we'll do. So you guys stand with me wherever you are. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've left us. I thank you for... I thank you for the account of your initial followers of Jesus where I, I relate to so much of their infirmity and their humanness and yet I am constantly inspired and overwhelmed by what you use them to do to change the world. And so Lord, I pray that constantly we would take the advice of the writer of Hebrews that we would acknowledge the great cloud of witnesses who have been in seasons much more divided than we are in, who face the threat of their life who are trying to be faithful to Jesus against odds that we cannot even wrap our minds around, and they were faithful. And God, you used them in such an extraordinary way. And so God, I, don't, I know this lands all over the place with so many different people, so I pray that you would cut through the noise in my own voice and you would clarify what your spirit wants to say. And I pray for our church as, as we look in the mirror that we would be a church that would be known for culturally disruptive unity. And there's people all over this room and all over our online platforms that disagree. They're on every side of every issue that we would find a way to unify around the one thing Jesus predicted that the church would unify around, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that's enough. So unify us around this. And I pray that whatever happens in these days ahead, the church would be salt and light in our cultures, in our neighborhoods, and in our own homes. And we pray this in Jesus' incredible name. Amen.
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.